Before we go ahead with this episode, let me ask you some questions. What was your biggest financial goal for this year? Putting down a deposit for your home, buying a BMW, going on a vacation, or preparing for retirement if you're that old? All brilliant and valid dreams. But valid doesn't equal easy. Sometimes you get stuck. You start to doubt your goals, their value, and your ability to make your dream come true. Here's where CowdyWise comes in. CowdyWise is a digital savings and investment platform that makes it easier to help you plan a sustainable path to your financial goals. It's an app that enables you to save and invest in a convenient way. You earn up to 15% on your savings. No penalties, no fees. You can save as little as you want. I've had the co-founder of CowdyWise as a guest on this platform. I also use the product. It is simple and efficient. To get started, you can download the app at CowdyWise.com. The next African story will be written by Africans. Meet the people using technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship to craft this new narrative. This is Building the Future Podcast with your host, Dalton, coming up today on Building the Future. The problem of government in Nigeria is not different from the problem of startups, right? It's an execution problem. Why should you leave governance to people that you cannot hire in your company? use your access properly. When he became governor, I sent him a document and said, sir, you know, this is our idea of how you should run the Employment Trust Fund. Um, And by by the way, if you want people to consult for you, we're happy to consult. And he said to me, come and see me. And I went and he said, no, 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 I'm not looking for a consultant. Come and run the thing yourself. Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. My guest today is someone you can call a technocrat. And I'm using the word here as someone who got a political appointment based on his technical expertise. But Akin Oyebode will not also shy away from being called a politician or someone who strongly believes in the fundamental role of politics as a driving force for change in the society. He is the executive secretary of the Lagos State Employment Trust Fund, which exists, according to their website, to provide financial support to residents of Lagos State, Nigeria and tackle unemployment through job and wealth creation. Job creation is one of the favorite carrots dangled by most politicians. For job gives a person not just a livelihood, but dignity and opportunities for self-actualization and prosperity. However, I can believe the LSETF is a vehicle that has taken this beyond campaign promise to a self-sustaining job creation and early stage funding platform. I'm grateful to my friend Blakis Abiola for the intro to Akin Oyebody. Without her, this episode wouldn't have happened. Akin, welcome to Building the Future podcast. I've heard so many good things about you, but more than that, I've seen your work with the uh, LSETF, which we're going to talk more about. But let us start from the beginning. Apparently, we were in the university at the same time, uh, University of Lagos. So I finished 2002, and I think you did as well. And your dad is a professor. So tell me about growing up in a very strong academic family and in the University of Lagos, especially in the 90s, when there was a lot of strike in the years of Shore, Majek. So can you tell me about your background, about that, that life and living in the, on the campus with a lot of Luther and with a, with a dad who is also very strong opinionated and many things? You know, I think very interesting. So, I mean, my father shaped me a lot. I'm very clear about that. You know, um, growing up, I mean, I was reading Hemingway at maybe 10 or 11. Wow. You know, I mean, Yayi, I remember heroes, Ken Sarwiwa on a darkling plane. So my father traveled a lot within Nigeria. And every time he returned home, 
he had a book or two for me. You know, so I look forward to those things. Um, and it was a mix of Nigerian literature um, and also more American American literature. And sometimes, you know, I'd I'd go into his study and steal a book because my father studies like his was his shrine just to see what's this man reading. Let me even understand the kind of stuff he reads. So that kind of shaped my reading my reading habits very strong. Now, I grew up in a family where my father was primarily, I would say, Marxist. Um, on Sundays, he didn't go to church. You know, he would buy 12 newspapers, have a bottle of Star, you know, and say we should pray for him, you know. So, and then my mom would shepherd us off uh, to church, you know. So, so I, 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 I always say I learned religious tolerance in my family because my father never said for one day, oh, you can't take them to church because I don't go. Right. She also never said for one day, you must come to church with us. Right. Um, and so, you know, my parents are both in education. My mother worked for WIAC um, till she retired. Um, so, I mean, I spent post school when, when I closed from school, I used to go to my mom. So we never we never lived on campus from inception. Right. So I wasn't born on campus. Right. I moved into campus. I think about 89, 90. Yeah. So I had always looked forward to living on campus. So I was very, very excited when it finally happened. But so it was very interesting. Um, and I think it helped shape, you know, some of my reading, some of my ability to sort of speak off the cuff, et cetera, because I, I, my father would watch TV. And if someone said something like, you can be rest assured, he would tap you and say, correct that person. Um, and so that was the, you know, it was always a learning environment. Every time my father had a conversation with me, you felt he was asking you a question. You felt he wanted to test your understanding of something. It was, you know, it, it created some pressure, but... Um, I guess we, we, we dealt with it. You know, but it was a small family. It is still a small family. We're a family of five. You know, I'm, I'm the first kid, got a younger brother and a sister. Um, interesting thing, in that family of five, four people have law degrees. Uh, I'm the black sheep, the one who doesn't have a law degree. So you're um, the only one that didn't study law. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it's interesting yesterday, right? I was trying to do some research about you and I was going on YouTube to just see some of the stuff that you've said. And, and I came across Akin, you know what they said, blah, blah. And I, I said, this is, this is not Akin that I know. It's, it's your dad. And he was giving, he was actually having a very strong political debate with some guys on TV uh, as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where I realized that he is a law professor. So you must have worked with the current vice president at the same time in the, in the same Oh, place. yes, yes. So my mother originally studied history. Um, at some point, then took a second degree in law. When people talk about feminism, for example, you know, I'm always, I always remember, like, my mother was very domestic, right? She took care of us. I mean, she picked us up from school. Sometimes I say, how did she do this with a job, right? She had a day job. She had a nine-to-five. I mean, my mother, in the middle of taking care of a family um, with a nine-to-five job, was still studying for a law degree. You know, she still graduated from the university again, which is maybe 25 years after she has first gone to the degree program. Went to law school, you know, passed her by exams, you know. So I always always say to myself, like, even if you look within your families, Nigeria has such a rich history of, of women empowering themselves, right? But these are stories that are just untold, you know. They, they are not things that we come out to say. So when people make it look like feminism is new to Nigeria, I keep saying, you know, women own their future um, back in the day. And it's just that we don't document these things, you know. Um, and I always say to her, like, it's incredible what you, what you did, you know. I'm not saying, like, you didn't build a spaceship. But in my eye, what you've done is so significant because you held your home, you held your job, you held a degree program that I can argue that without distractions, people don't even finish, you know? So, so it was very interesting just watching that. And that was, that, was, that was great. Now, you asked me about Unilag and growing up on campus. You know, one of the things you learn about growing up on campus is you learn independence, you learn original thoughts, um, you learn engagement, you learn how to earn respect. You know, um, some things that I grew up doing, people don't understand. You know, my parents never looked for 9 p.m., 10 p.m., they were not working. You know, Why? Really because, is it because the security situation on campus is more controlled? Oh, it's controlled. They knew you were either riding your bicycle or you were in someone's house playing a game. The only thing they'll say to you is that, you know, don't overstay your welcome in someone's house, right? So always come home, you know, those kind of things. But we had a very free approach to life, you know. Um, we went camping, you know. We went into the bush sometimes. You know, these are things that people won't do now. Um, you know, we, we, we were very communal, you know. People could sleep over in your house. You could sleep over in other people's houses, you know. So the university environment also, I have friends today who are 10, 15 years older than me, right? Because as a kid, 
in high school, I knew people who were in uni, who were sending us on errands, go and buy me a bottle of coke, go and do this. I always say my university, my uni-like experience transcends my own stay as a student. And a few years after I left the university, because I still lived on campus, I lived in my parents' BQ for a, for a pretty long time post-graduation. So, I mean, people who still got into university around 2008, 2009, I still know. So my, my uni-like experience was very interesting. I, I, I lived through the strikes. I lived through the activism. I lived through locking the campus gates um, in protests. Um, I lived through seeing people like Malcolm Fabi and Omoyele Shore, who is now, of course, a lot more notorious um, as student activists, you know. I mean, and those, and I, I didn't necessarily meet them in university, right? But I lived through those experiences, you know. And I, I remember the first time I thought my father, hmm, that this guy might be a bit special. I, I grew up in a family of activists, right? My father and his friends were core activists. I mean, Professor Funsha Kingbadi of Blessed Memory. I remember Professor of Business Administration said to me, my first degree was in chemical engineering because I thought that we needed someone to understand how to make bombs and stuff for the revolution. I mean, Professor Olurode, you know, Professor Yai. And my father was very active in the ASU, ASU movement. At the By the time. way, where did he study? Again, we're going to a bit of um, yeah. um, university, uh, Nigerian university and, and, and relationship and the dynamics between that and, and pressure on activism and Marxism. I know mm-hmm. the core Marxist movement was more the base in, in Abu, Abu Zaria. That's where a lot of the Marxist um, yep. activists and intellectuals... Yeah, yes, yes. So, um, and, and again, people like Yadwa uh, Jr. were mm-hmm. the product of that. Did your dad study there or was he part of those ones that studied in Ibadan? So, my, my, so my, no, no, no. So my father is an authentic, what you might call an authentic Marxist. <laughs> um, then, so my father, very interesting, went to school in, in Soviet Union and in the United States. So, um, so he went to Kiev for his law degree, ended up at Harvard Law School, then went off to Osgood. So he's kind of like, you know, I learned Marxism from the people that invented it. Um, so, so but, but the interesting thing for me is like, I'm, complete, I'm the complete opposite, right? So um, I'm very market-leaning. Um, uh, but I mean, I always say I'm a bit of a centrist, in fact. Let me not say the opposite, right? But, but it's interesting to see that even though I read things like, you know, Chairman Mao's Little Red Book, and, you know, my father fed us some material from whether it was North Korea or Soviet Union or Cuba, you know. So, we, I mean, Castro was like a superhero back in the day, you know. Interesting. Everything was about Cuba, you know. So, but, but, the, but the thing is, I, I ended up finding my path, right? Um, and I have a degree in economics, which effectively, you know, helps to balance or shape that argument. Because but, um, most of the economics in Nigeria being taught is a is, is lot of neoliberal economics view. Correct. A lot and of Keynesian point of view about economics. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, you know, I always think about economics when I studied it, that look, a lot of the people, I, I was very lucky because some of the economics I learned were from people who were also practitioners, right? So I always remember my, my professor who taught me macroeconomics. Sadly, he's no longer with us. Uh, professor Tayo Fakesi. You know, he was, he had come back into academics from a career in banking, right? So he wasn't speaking from a teaching perspective solely, right? He was speaking from being an operator and you could see how those things shaped his views, you know, and how robust the arguments were. So he never came from the point of, I'm trying to force my ideology on you. It was always, look, this is a balanced view of the world. You go decide which one you agree with, you know? I think we were lucky um, in a way that, we, we still went through a, with the university education when there was a lot of quality in terms of the, 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 teaching, the teaching methods and the people who taught us. I, you know, I remember in the economics faculty at the time, you know, we had Professor Fajano who would say to you, you know, the, Richard Lipsy, whose book you are reading, you know, I bested him at LSE. And we had people like Professor J. U. Moore who had gone to the ILO. Professor Fajano later on went to the ILO and I believe went to the AU. Um, you know, we had about eight professors of economics at the time. In the faculty of law where my dad was, there were three Harvard professors of law. There was him, there was Professor Obilade, and there was late Professor Lide Adibun. You know, so the quality of, of professors, the best of the best went to teach. I don't think that the best people in our generation are necessarily teaching, right? And that's because, of course, you know, there's, there's lots of dysfunction within that system. But in that time, what I felt was, look, these guys, I mean, my father lived on campus, his commute to work was five minutes, you know. 
he'll go to the staff club to have it there. He'll come back home at five. He's with us till we go to bed. You know, the, it was, it was, the quality of life was very good. Even if the paycheck wasn't the best, we had free Medicare. We had 24 hours power. So my brother, the first time I learned that changeover, what changeover was, was when I moved to my own apartment. I wouldn't lie. I didn't even know how to turn the generator on. You know, I, didn't, I had to learn all these things because I lived on campus. There was always power. There was always water. You know, it was such a sheltered, make-believe life in hindsight, right, that I didn't realize that, oh, this is not how the rest of Nigeria is. The only time you realize that, oh, you're in a different space is when you go out with your parents in the evening, right? And on your way back, there's darkness from third mainland all the way till you get to the university gates, and then you see light, you know? So, so but it was an but, interesting period. But, but let's talk about that. Let's talk about, um, there are a few things that are actually interesting. I was listening to you talk, and there are a few questions that was coming to my mind. Um, one of them is I want to really talk about um, he, you grew up in a family where your dad, very strong, um, uh, left-leaning view, Marxism. Now you are in a, in a very good position and your viewpoint has changed over time. And you are almost um, using economics um, intervention, capitalist intervention to actually uh, shape a lot of things based on your role now with uh, Lagos State uh, Employment Trust Fund, which is based on the fact that government can influence, but then private sector should create jobs, uh, if, if I get that right. All right. At what point did your view change a bit? And, and did you have some good argument and debate with your dad while you're growing up? Um, or is it because of the fact that you decided to study economics and that shaped your thinking? The, to the second question, we still have those debates still now. Um, and I think we're going to have those debates till, 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 till kingdom come. Um, but I think my, my view, so first in university, um, I think, you know, the whole concept of an invisible hand sort of, you know, made some sense. Um, but I think in, in theory, I mean, in practice, over the course of my life, you know, I've seen history being reshaped, you know. Um, first, I think the collapse of the Soviet Union was a big sign that this process um, as, a, as, a, as a political or economic model was not sustainable, right? Um, and so I think that collapse helped capitalism permeate a lot uh, because you had two people at opposite sides and one of them seemed to be thriving while the other was, you know, disintegrating. Um, and so I think from an evidence-based perspective, you know, opinions started to shift. I mean, I think at the purest form of socialism, um, we've seen even Venezuela now unravel significantly. Um, and so you, you do recognize that the state has a role and an, an important role in enabling markets um, and ensuring that consumers are not shortchanged, you know, where possible resources are effectively allocated um, and resources that are deemed as social resources should be in, in the hands of the state. So in my opinion, basic education, healthcare, you know, access to some basic amenities Roads, for example, cannot be something that you can completely commercialize. Otherwise, the basic, the poorest people will never have access to it, right? So you can't say, oh, some roads will be commercial, but general, the generality of roads, everyone should have access to roads. Now, if you now want fast roads that shorten your journey significantly, then you should pay more for that, you know? So that's the way I, I, I've come to view the world that, look, I don't think that, you know, the the rat is, as um, I think it was Deng Xiaoping that said that, you know, it doesn't matter if the cat is uh, black or white as long as it catches mice. You know, I, I think that the fixation on some economic ideology is a waste of time. I think effectively what you do is what works for you works for you, right? Um, but what does ideology, like you said, um, ended up shaping policies, ended up shaping uh, behaviors, ended up shaping the way uh, things are implemented, right? So right. ideology is key because one of the one of the short shortfall of the Nigerian um, uh, economic uh, and, and political life is is lack of ideology, lack mm -hmm. of deep ideology that is based on conviction and and that people make decision based on that conviction rather than short-term gain or popularism. Um, so so I, I think I, I just, maybe I want, I, want, I, want to, I want to debate you that way, but yeah. ideology is very important. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe the fact that we, we're, we're not picking the right one. So you, one might say that, <laughs> not the ideology that is a problem, is that you are not committed to the right one, uh, basically. The, the, the challenge we've had is that I don't think as a society, we've had that clarity. Even the people cannot say, hey, this is the biggest issue that I'm interested in. There's, there, there's limited clarity on, on what we stand for as 
people, as individuals, right? And I think that that helps even in building society. You know, um, some people will say I'm anti-abortion, I'm pro-abortion. I don't care about anything else. I'm only, I'm only worried about right to life. You know, some people will say, and those are not even ideological views, those are individual positions. But it's from those individual positions, a body of those positions then helps you to form the, the ideology. And I think it's important that political parties have to evolve into a space of ideological um, integrity. I mean, I'm a member of a political party. I'm a member of the All Progressive Congress. The, the campaign is there, that's fine. But within the core of some parties, the APC, for example, has a core ACN base, has a core CPC base. Now, the ACN base of the APC will say to you, we're social welfareist party, right? We want an equitable distribution of resources for the good and all, right? It's now, our role as, as champions of that ideology is to now see how we can make that thing move through the broader structures of the party. But if you think about things like the UPN in the, in the 80s, right? There was, there was clarity. So it's not as if we never had this clarity, you know? Um, UPN will say to you, free education up to a certain point, free healthcare up to a certain point. These are things that we believe the people should get. Now, did we execute it perfectly? Maybe not, right? And so there are two problems. One is even redefining these ideological differences, but two is executing better than we, we currently do. And I always say to people that, look, the problem of government in Nigeria is not different from the problem of startups, right? It's an execution problem, right? Because let me tell you why. When you put in a contract, which is a statement of, or sorry, in a budget, which is a statement of intent, right? That I want to build a road from Lagos to Kano. You know what the problem is? It is that people cannot get to Kano properly. You know what the solution is? It is putting eight lanes between Lagos and Kano. Why doesn't it get done? Because the process from identifying the contractor, ensuring that the contractor does the work, costing the project properly, etc. Something breaks in that chain. And what does that mean? What does it mean? Is it that there's no enough resources or enough manpower or enough uh, uh, people that can execute that project? The one is there's an execution problem from a talent perspective. I mean, I think that, you know... The in terms of capability of capability that can do that. Companies, one. So I think, one, there's a company, there's a talent issue from the private sector. I, you want to get something done and you want multiple people to do it. Because the problem also is that, for example, everybody will say, oh, go and call Julius Berger. How many roads can Julius Berger build? At some point, there's too much concentration in one or two people, then you create another type of risk around it. You know, so even having a body of competence, and it's getting better now, by the way, you know, was always a challenge. The second part is that on the government side, we've been conditioned to, to think that government is for the deep team, that politics and governance is for our seventh level, right? And that's a problem that elites have created, right? Where in 99, understandably so, many people said, hey, we're not getting involved in a military, midwife democratic uh, process, right? And so, you know, we left this space open. But the truth is that why should you leave governance to people that you cannot hire in your company. Yeah, those people have entrenched um, their, 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 their power in those parties. So they're the gatekeepers. So it should be hard. And then politics can be a waste of time to a lot of people. I'm not, I'm not defending that position. I've always been on the view that people yeah. involved in but let me governance. And governance is more than politics. But I think if you go by the line of thought that you just said that 1999, uh, people were skeptical uh, because of the experience they had in 92 and 91, 92, 93. They were skeptical about this new one, and, and then they left it over for people that will, that, that had the time to, 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 to spend on it. And those people become the, they, they became the gatekeeper over time. You know, you can't win the conversation from outside the room. You've got to be there. You've got to show up. You've got to do the work. You know, and one of the reasons I went to work and I accepted um, with all humility the opportunity to serve this government is that I said to myself, we must go in there, we must try to make the, an example, a good example of this thing, and we must encourage more people to show that they can do it. You know, we must tell people like, people like you are doing it. You know, we, we, we are not going to, we, you know, it's not going to hurt us. So other people can join us. The fact that people like Dr. Ezekwesili, like Mrs. Ezekwesili could join government and serve in government, the fact that people like Nasir El Rufai went to serve in government, it, 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 it helps shape people like me. The fact that people like Kyle Defiami could 
leave his career in academics and consulting and say, I want to go and govern the Kitty State. You know, it did a lot to shape me. When I listened to BRF speak, you know, and I said, look, this guy, he sounds like, like me. You know, he's one of us. You know, you've got to say, look, if these guys can do it, why not you? I mean, today I work for Governor Ambody, right? You need, you need someone to be forward-thinking enough to say, look, I'm going to create this fund, right? I'm going to try to help businesses. Now, that's step one, right? To even have the vision to do it, right? Step two is to commit resources to doing it. Step three is to say, I'm going to call this young boy, right? Because in Nigerian terms, I'm young. I'm, you know, I'm going to call this young boy and I'm going to say, go and help me do this stuff within the confines of, of, of a board and the right governance structure, etc. The truth is that it's not, a, it's not a position that many people will take. And that's the benefit of having people with some degree of exposure, insights, you know, um, and, and intellectual uh, ability, gravitas in those roles. Now, what you want is you don't want these things to be the exception. You want them to be the rule. You know, you want to have, you don't want to have pockets of excellence. You want to have broad-based excellence across board. So it's, 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 it's important that as educated people, we are part of the politics of the state, but we're even involved in the voting, in the election, in the campaigning. You know, people take election time as when to go on vacation. You know, it's important that we own these issues. Nobody's going to solve these problems for us. Let's talk about your own journey. So you, uh, you, you finished from the rest of Lagos and then you started working initially as a research assistant and then you went into banking. How, tell me about that journey from banking to now working in a, in a government and almost like a political position now. How did, I, how did you get into the door to make your own argument? So I worked for two banks, primarily FCMB and Stambik. Very exciting times. Um, I always say at, I've been very lucky. So I, I, I'm not a good motivational speaker because there's a lot of luck in my career story, right? And I've always seized the moment. Um, so I'm not scared of seizing the moment. That's one thing I know about myself. Um, so at LBS, I was attached to Professor Albert Alos, and I was his research assistant, and I love Prof till, till, till today. Um, he, was, he was amazing for me. You know, he helped build my confidence. Um, he was a fantastic man. He dealt with me as a, as a pair, you know, and I always say Pro- Professor Alos was my first real experience of having a much older friend, you know, because I was maybe 30 at the time. He was in maybe his late 60s. But he talked to me as a body, you know. Um, and, you know, you know, culturally, it's very difficult for you to have older friends in Nigeria, right? Um, so he was the first person that was like, you know, I might be your, like, your, your, I'm older than your dad, but, you know, you and I are bodies. Um, and then I worked for doing Salami, Chris Ogwechia in Kadeg West, you know. And those people are doing, and Yinka are still my friends till today. Sakris is a much, much loved Egbon till today. Um, and after I left the LBS, I went to work for uh, um, FCMB. And again at FCMB, you know, I had a boss who is no longer with us, Tolak Badamosi, that he said to me, you know, my job is to hire you. Your job is to do this stuff. So I don't need to take your work and send it to the MD. You know, if I like it, I send it to the MD yourself. You're the one doing the work. My job is to create the environment for you. So I had very early exposure to Ladi Balogun, who was uh, MDC of, of uh, FCMB at the time. Ladi was a tough taskmaster, you know. Um, the downside to that exposure was working through the night sometimes. Um, my girlfriend at the time, who is now my wife, had many times where I'd have to beg her, please go into my BQ, help me pack a bag. You know, my friend would come to pick it up at night and bring it to me because I'm now holed up in Ikoi or in VI somewhere doing some work overnight, you know. But it was a great experience, right? Um, and it also helped me understand that, you know, whether the person is a leader or someone in authority, at the end of the day, still a human being, right? So I always have, I've always kept my voice because with Ladi, there was, I could question him, I could challenge him. Sometimes the audacity of you would mean that I challenged him in an improper manner. But instead of pointing that out, he didn't want to stifle me, right? So he would answer me, you know, but then maybe, maybe a few weeks later, you know, he'll be like, you know, you can ask that differently, right? You can be a bit more polite when you're asking that question. But um, and that's something that I try to do even now, you know, with, with the team and with the people that work with me, that look, you know, don't look at me as some kind of, don't, 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 make, me, don't, don't make me feel like I'm some kind of uh, demigod, you know? I'm a human being like you with one head, two ears and, you know, like walk into my office, 
feel free to tell me what you think we're doing wrong, etc. You know, um, and that's how we've now sort of just related as a team. But after FCMB, I went to Stambik. Again, Stambik was great. I had a more senior role at Stambik, of course. Um, and at that point, I started taking a more... I've always been politically active, right? Um, uh, from even like June 12, you know, I couldn't vote at the time, but I was very interested in the election. I listened to the debates. You know, I still remember... I mean, there were people within the university who were politicians, you know, so I always looked up to them with envy, you know. Um, and I always remember like Baba Gana Kingibe, um, debate especially, you know, and I was, so I was always very, I was very involved in following politics, you know, I read it in the newspapers, you know, the Yaradua uh, primaries, you know, I, so I followed all that process, even though I was maybe 13 or 14 or 12 at the time, I can't remember how old, but mm-hmm. it was my teens, but I was very interested. That so, was the first Yaradua, right? Not, not the second. Yes, so that's Sheo Musa Yaradua. Yeah. Right. Um, so, so when the time came to vote in 99, was very excited for the first time to cast my vote. You know, I always say to people that, you know, the first person I remember voting for was Bola Tinovu. Um, Interesting. Um, and I mean, it was very, it was very strong, you know, very strong in my mind. Um, and even presidential elections, you know, I was, I, so I was very involved. But by 2003, um, I had realized that, look, you know, this thing, you have to join the party. Right. So in 2007, I joined the ACN. Um, I was a bit older then, uh, but no active role. Just Sidon look, as Bolaige famously said. Um, but by 20, and I don't, I think by 2013, um, I had started taking very, very strong political views. Um, I started off with, so I always say, like, I joined Twitter because of politics. Um, Interesting. The reason I joined Twitter. So I joined Twitter. The first handle I followed was a handle called AKTRR. Um, that handle now belongs to the governor of Ekiti State, Dr. Kayode Fayemi. Um, and AKTRR was the handle for, for reporting the court case between uh, Dr. Fayemi and uh, Chief Shegoni. So I, I, I followed the case on Yahoo Messenger. Oh, sorry, on, on a Yahoo group, right? And I noticed that they were pulling the, the excerpts from some place called Twitter, right? So I figured instead of waiting for someone to post from mm-hmm. Twitter to the Yahoo, I might as well go to the source because I was, you know, I was hungry for information. So that's how I joined Twitter, you know. Um, and so by the time it came to the last elections, I figured it was important to take a stand. Um, I took a very public stand. I, I did a national debate on channels supporting then General Muhammad Buhari. Um, many, a, a number of people thought I was crazy because at the time I was head of SME banking for Stambik IBTC. When you uh, said but I was very clear, debate, I, you joined, yes. you're debating someone else who was supporting the other person. Correct. And you yes. guys are doing proxy debate. Proxy debate. So proxy debate, correct. Now, so people said to me, but you, you know, you're head of SME banking at Stambik IBTC, you know, and I always said to people that I'm not a senseless revolutionary, by the way. I don't believe in romanticizing this stuff and saying I died in battle. So I didn't join... I didn't do this because I wanted to be um, a hero. I read the staff policy of the bank, right? Um, and the policy was clear that I could hold my personal views, etc. So when I was going in there, I was sure that I wasn't breaking any rules, right? I might have been stretching the rules, but I wasn't breaking any rules. So I always say to people, don't do something stupid in, this, in, the, in the name of making a point. And so that's how, you know, um, I did that. And then at some point, I did some work with the policy directorate um, of the presidential campaign. Uh, I fortuitously met uh, Mr. Kim Omiambode then. Um, again, in my way, of, I quizzed him significantly. Why do you want to be governor? And so, I mean, I just got on well with him. Um, but I didn't know I was going to work for him later, you know. And I, mean, I, I said to myself, you know, if I like a candidate, I believe the person will make a good administrator, then I should contribute whatever I can. Even if it's five votes that I bring to you, you know, um, I should try to convince people to support you, you know, and that's what we did. Um, but ultimately, I think that some of those things give you some notoriety, right? And people tend to remember people. So when, this, when someone says, how did you get this job? I always say, I don't know. You're asking the wrong person. You should ask the governor because he, 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 he was the one who said to me, 
come and do this, come and do this thing. And but to be fair, I mean, that's one of the things you have to do is use your access properly. Um, when he became governor, I sent him a document and said, sir, you know, this is a this is my this is our, our thoughts. It wasn't even my idea. We're a team of three, three people. You know, this is our idea of how you should run the employment trust fund. Um, and by by the way, if you want people to consult for you, we're happy to consult. You know, um, and he said to me, come and see me. And I went and he said, no, 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 I'm not looking for a consultant. Come and run the thing yourself. Interesting. You know, um, and, I, you know, I tried to mumble a few excuses and he said, well, you know, you're a young man, you know, you guys talk a lot, you know, but now it's time to do the work. And, you know, I said, you know, let me talk to my wife. You know, that's the major stakeholder who is affected by these decisions. And then when I got the green light, I accepted the offer. And here we are today. So... Tell me, uh, I know we've spent a lot of time talking about you, your background, your ideology, your philosophy, and your journey. I really want to talk a bit about the LST, LSETF itself. And yeah. I don't want to talk about the original vision of this and how far you've gone in that. I mean, I, I want to strip away some of, this, some of the normal soundbite about we, we, we've given X amount of loan, we've done, we've done this. Mm-hmm. I want to really go into the core of it. What is it that you guys want to critically and radically change that has not been done before? When we set out, the point here was support small businesses, especially young people um, who have struggled for one reason or the, or the other to scale their businesses, raise finance, etc. How we were going to do it was a, was a blank sheet. There was no framework. The point was just go and help us create jobs in Lagos. You know? Do what you can to enable private businesses thrive to create jobs. Um, so you've got to enable private enterprise to ensure that private enterprise can create the jobs. And you know, that, that mindset was very important because from a... From, a, from an executive perspective, there was no, there was no, oh, this is what you should do. You know, this is what I think you should do. None of that. And I think that that clean slate, you know, that blank sheet gave us a lot of comfort in saying, how do we go about doing these things? What are the different things we want to test and learn? You know, and that's not something that you necessarily get when you are working within the government. So I always say, from the governor's perspective, um, I would say that this is how leadership should run. You know, you should give people the chance to test and learn. You know, you should give people the chance to potentially even make some mistakes, you know. Um, and that's something that we are not very used to in these climate. you know. Uh, people are not even giving... I'm not saying that go and fail, but you must leave an allowance for failure. Um, and failure is, is, is the way life is, you know. It's inevitable. But we, may, we treat it as a taboo in Nigeria. Like, you know, you can't fail. Yeah. But, can't but was, there big, was there a big mandate in terms of the number of jobs you should create? No. And, and the, the, but what was the main, main mandate? Uh, do you have any mandate at all? The mandate, so the mandate is we'll provide, and we'll provide you some seed funding, right? Go and, you go and tell us what we can do with this capital. How many jobs can we create? What kind of strategy you are going to use to uh, create the jobs? Um, how much can you get from the private sector? So the only mandate was go and build an institution that is nimble enough to partner with the private sector. Interesting. Right? Government is not going to do this alone. So again, from the perspective of the governor, we had fairly broad terms of reference, right? Um, that helped us you know, that helped, gave us an allowance to now build a strategy document. So, I mean, when we were inaugurated, we went straight into a strategy retreat, right, um, from the inauguration. You know, we brainstormed for, I will say, about five or six months, you know, before we finally articulated the strategy. So from when we were inaugurated to when we started executing, we were inaugurated in March of 2016. We didn't write our first loan until January of 2017. It's important that you give you have patience in building the, the infrastructure. You, you don't want to get into an analysis paralysis mode, but you also want the right level of rigor, you know, yeah. to support whatever you are doing. Because at the end of the day, that rigor will come out. You know, it will, it will come through in the quality of the execution. Mm. So talk me through the vision then after that you analyze this. So when you 
plan to, let's say maybe three or five years time, what do you really want to achieve tangibly in terms of the number of jobs or the terms of, in terms of the industry you want to really strengthen or the ecosystem you want to build or the kind of capital that you want to go into Lagos to, to, to help existing business? So let me tell you the first thing, you know, very interesting that you've asked this. The first thing that I learned from this process, right, is when you build, when you articulate this strategy and you do all these fancy things, the truth of the matter is that the reality is always going to be different from the strategy. True. Um, so when we started, we had more aggressive numbers. You know, we wanted to create, you know, say, oh, we wanted to support 100,000 businesses, create one million jobs, we quickly realized that mm, this is not as easy as we think it is. So we had to recalibrate those numbers. And um, one of the things that we, had, we, we do is that we publicize our numbers. So if you go to our website today, you see some of our targets out there. Um, but our goal was primarily, primarily to say, look, the challenge we have in Lagos is we have a million people coming into Lagos every year. Um, over the next three to four years, and between now and the end of 2019, so from 2016 to 2019, we should at least be able to create between 200 and 300,000 jobs. Interesting. Uh, and, and, but we are not the ones creating the jobs. We are enabling businesses create those jobs. Private um, sector jobs. How do you want to do that? So, so again, when you lend to businesses, um, so if you think about our vision, right? Our vision is to create employment and entrepreneurship opportunities for Lagos residents, mm. right? So these, these things are not, we didn't, we didn't come through this compass statement by accident. If you look at our mission, our mission has some interesting words. It says, enabling Lagos residents realize their aspirations by providing leverage and access to finance. Between our vision and mission, you see that we are an enabler. Interesting. We're a catalyst. So we're not the ones creating the jobs right? We're not creating the jobs. We're just saying that we are here to enable that process, you know? And it's very in, in, important for you to determine those things yourself because, you know, you are who you say you are, mm-hmm. right? So making sure that, look, we are an enabler. We are not front and center of the activity, you know? It means that our job is to first, for example, for the small businesses, our role is to ensure that we support small businesses and then those businesses go and create jobs. When we talk about our um, role within the technical and vocational training space, our role is to provide the talent for, to fill the roles that businesses have identified they have. When we talk about Lagos Innovates, our role is to provide an enabling environment for startups to get access to infrastructure. So things like co-working spaces that already solve a power and uh, internet broadband problem. Um, our role is to say, oh, we are trying to build some talent, you know, some front-end, back-end development talent, some software engineering talent. The talent that is needed to help the ecosystem, right, will give people vouchers to go and learn these skills and come and feed it back into this ecosystem. You know, so, so those are the things that we're looking to do. When we say we're hosting hackathons, for example, it's not just because we want to have events. It's because we want people to come and hack solutions that affect the people of Lagos State. You know, so, so our role is not to be front and center of the piece. We are not building a hub. We are not going to say, oh, this is an LSCTF hub, competing with CC hub, with Idea hub, and sorry, Idea might not be there anymore, with lead space and workstation. No. Why should we do that? We're not in the business of running hubs. What we want to do is create, give runway to startups by reducing the amount they spend on co-working spaces. So we'll give them a voucher so that the, the, the capital they are saving from their rent in co-working spaces, they can use to bootstrap their business. But the nature of government is that when you start facilitating stuff like that, you become part of the whole process because government is big. Okay, so once the government name is in something, you become the biggest player in the mix. And it makes people to think that you are just, you are doing more than facilitation. For example, you're writing checks, you're, you're, lo- you're, you're, you're lending, uh, probably you're funding as well. So how do you balance that? And how do you help people to be able to, to change their mind, mindset based on what you just talked about now? Because I get money from LSCT, I've got money from government. And the way I'm going to interact with that government is totally different from the way I interact with a microfinance bank. 
Oh, sure, sure. I mean, I hear that and I get you. Um, but you know, one of the things that you have to you think about yeah, is that this is a, it's a, it's a continuum, right? Um, so lending is not something that one person will start and finish, right? What we, what we are doing is we are taking first mile risk on people that banks will not give money to without security. Right. When we're giving the person the first loan and you see that the person was able to repay that loan, then perhaps as a lender, you are more willing to give the person a subsequent loan. Right. And, and then there are also some other things that we're going to do with that loan program I might not be able to speak about now that right. will help you understand that we're not competing with banks, right? So, in fact, what we are doing is that we are taking first-mile risk for banks to be able to participate in this space with a lot more confidence, right? Um, so, our role is not to replace banks. Our role is not to, is not to take the role of banks. I can okay. tell you that. Okay, let's move that to the funding for, for, uh, for startups or for yes. an equity funding rather than loan. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your position on that? Is it that you're you'll be writing checks directly to companies or you're going to be funding existing investors who understand this space and who know maybe they've got, they know how to generate the leads and manage the companies. Or, or you're doing what you are currently doing with banks, that you're going to take the first risk and then write the smaller checks first and then hopefully investors will take up from that later on. Because there are two separate approaches. Yeah, I think with the startup, with the startup ecosystem, I think we're going to do things fairly differently. Um, the first thing is that we are never going to be the ones to go and start writing checks, right? Um, I don't think that that's who we are, and I don't think that we are designed for that level of work, right, as a fund. Um, and if we end up doing that, then I think we're doing the wrong things. Now, what we, what we, what we would like to do is go into a, into a situation where we can, one, potentially co-fund or be like an LP in a bigger fund, right? And say XYZ uh, Venture Fund, right? You guys have a two or three year track record in supporting startups. Um, we will due diligence on you. And then we will say to you that, well, you can invest up to X amount per startup. Um, um, as long as these guys have full operations in Lagos, etc. right? So we will be leveraging our capital to support the existing um investment ecosystem right yeah um so so what you're doing is you can be helpies you can but you want to put money there but not directly investing in the startups um that makes sense i I think london does something similar the london mayor um i think there's a fund that they co-invest with existing funds so you've spotted the startup you identify them you want to invest in them instead of you writing three hundred thousand dollars or pounds check you can write 150,000 pounds and then london um the, the, the co-investment fund hypothetically uh, yeah, yes investment. so hypothetically that's what that's 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 the way we're looking at that but if you think about our problems in nigeria the first problem is even increasing the pipeline right yes so one of the things that we are doing with our workspace voucher program is also trying to develop a pipeline right so these are guys that might not be ready for an investment. They've never done a seed round, right? Um, but they need money to even be able to sit in a place that has free power and, and unlimited broadband. Um, right. And so instead of them paying 200,000 naira a month for that space, they'll end up paying 50,000 naira because we have subsidized the rest on their behalf, right? And whatever they've saved, they can then used to bootstrap their business to a point where it then becomes visible to a VC that, oh, this is an interesting business that's gained some traction and we probably should be putting some money in that. You are using the probability of failure for early, very early stage, stage startups. Correct. Okay. That makes sense. And, and it's not sexy work, right? Because, you know, it's not the sexy work. That's the truth. But it's necessary work, you know, because if we don't, if we don't increase that pipeline, then why is Y Combinator going to keep coming to Nigeria? You know, why is there 500 startups going to come to Nigeria? Yeah. You know, all the eco-VCs and uh, the greenhouse capital and all the people investing, um, Alicia and all these guys, where are they going to TLP? Where are they going to see the na- next names from? You know, yeah. everybody knows 
everybody knows Printivo, everybody knows Paga, you know, everybody knows, you know, Kanpe, everybody knows Fam Crowdy, you know. There are maybe 30 or 40 names, you know. When, even when, the, when our leaders are speaking, we're all name-checking the same guys, you know. Yeah. Andela, Paystack, Flutterway, you know. These names have been on the radar for five years, you know. I think it's no valid Bulawayo that wrote that book. We, you know, we need new names. Yeah. And that's what we are interested in doing, ensuring that we can find those new names. So, so that leads me to the, to the next question. And remember, one of the last series of questions is, the nature of startup is that these things are risky. Some of those people that you're funding, you probably, the business will die. And, and that's why that work is very, 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 very hard to do. And it, it takes a lot of money. So let's talk about the sustainability of LS ETF. And I'm going to ask that question in twofold. One, in the fold of, even let's say this government continues and maybe you win the next election and you're there, what is, how far is the government going to run? What's the runway for this? Okay, and how much, have we got limitless cash to make this work? And uh, is there a stopgap there? That's one. Number two is the sustainability of this when the government changes. Okay, it can still be the same party, but the governor moves on. How, how do you see this? This, this thing, uh, the sustainability of LSCTF in supporting the ecosystem the way you are doing now? But you know, the first thing is, like I said, there are some things that we are adjusting from our current model that I, mm. I can't obviously speak about right now. Right. But what, on our loan program, we're definitely going to we're going to make some, you know, some tweaks that make us more sustainable, right? That, that means that with those tweaks, we typically not need um, to, to be subsidized, right? Right. Um, now, for some of these programs, for example, for example, with the program around talent development, vocational training, you could arguably say that, we, I mean, we are considering making those kind of programs student loan programs, right? Right. Uh, and so before you even get on the program, you know, you have to get a loan, right? So it's repayable um, and it ensures that it then becomes a revolving loan facility, right? And Regardless of the government in office, as long as you are not you are not being asked to to commit fresh resources, you know, if you see that a program is working on its own and there are no challenges, why will you shut it down? So, for example, one of the things that we did differently and we learned from, say, the federal government's UN program was that our MSME loan program was what it it was a loan program, right? It wasn't a grant program. And the reason it wasn't a grant program was so that, you know, you, you get the money revolving and you can continue to plow that money back into the program, right? So, so it becomes self-sustaining over time. It becomes self-sustaining over time, exactly. So, so for a number of our other programs, we're going to have the same approach. Now, for the ecosystem, for the startup ecosystem, it's fairly different. You know, I always say that, Government interventions in, uh, in the startup ecosystem should not be permanent, right? Right, right. It should, be, it, should be, it should be catalytic, right? So, for example, with workspace vouchers, what is the problem? Workspaces, people cannot afford the cost of using the workspaces, right? right. Because people cannot afford the cost, occupancy levels are low. One of two things will happen. Existing customers are either paying more or the workspaces are shutting down. Yeah. Right? By providing a voucher that subsidizes that cost, it means that the occupancy levels go up. Mm. People can be subsidized till their businesses gain traction. Yeah. But this is not something that if you do this for seven or eight years as a government, you are doing something wrong. Because it tells you that the ecosystem is not developing. So this is almost, this is something like giving a child, you know, the, what, what do you call those things? The things the that work help work the work yeah. Right? By the time the child is 18 months, the child should be able to work. But you're talking holistically now, the ecosystem, rather than just one, one or two companies. Correct. So at some point, right, the average cost of using a workspace will come down because occupancy is higher. Yeah. Right? At that time, other people can then afford to pay that will not have even been able to work out of the workspace. At that, point, at that point, that program can be terminated, right? You, you've succeeded in what you're doing, you move on to the next thing. Now, if you think about some of the investments that potentially we could make through a fund in startups. Now, if you take the right bets, if, and it's a big if, if you take the right bets, you could argue that one or, one or two of those investments will 
pay for the entire portfolio mm -hmm. and give a healthy return. Yes. Now, the moment, the moment you have, a, even if it's, a, we're not, you know, we're not a for-profit institution, right? So we're not looking for 50X on the portfolio, right? We're not looking for 6X. We're looking for maybe 1.52X, right? If we get any form of a return, at least the, the, the government recognizes that there's capital protection, right? And yeah. this is something that we can continue to do. And, and we'll make the bet again next time. Yes. And also remember, as long as the economy of the state is growing, and we can attribute some of these things to that, and the tax base is widening, then it makes sense. And nobody is going to, you know, this thing, I always say that it's an incentive-based conversation, right? Yes. So nobody is going to um, do something that is self-destructive, right? If something is working, why would you stop it? You know, so if you think about last month today, Last month started under Ashwaju, correct? Mm. Why is it still running till today? Because subsequent governments have seen value in it. Interesting. Interesting. And now we cannot remember a Lagos without last month, you know? So what I always say to the team is we are going to sink or swim by our success or failure, right? Mm. If we execute very well, if we're able to demonstrate that this works, in fact, what we are seeing now is that other states are coming to ask us, how did you do this? How do you do that? Right? So people so, are trying to do something similar in other states as correct. well. So in my view, I don't see any reason why any government, either, I mean, obviously you know that because this is the brainchild of this government. Um, mm. So even subsequent governments, right? I don't see any reason why subsequent governments will say, oh, this doesn't make sense. Now, or if we don't execute properly, then that conversation is in play. Yeah. But as long as we execute properly and we are able to demonstrate the outcomes, um, I don't think that we have any concerns. And how big is this fund at the moment? Um, right now, it's a nine billion naira fund. Which is how much in dollars? About less than thirty. Less than thirty million dollars. So yeah. it's in the big scheme of things, it's not it's it's not a lot of money, but it's actually big. It can make huge impact in Nigeria and Lagos. Correct. Um, well, yeah. So let me let, let me quickly be rounding off now and just ask you one question. I, I, I've, I've, I understand that you you you're very political, which you also said as well, and your political ambition. So what is in it? What if what what should we be looking at for for Aki today or your body in the uh, maybe not the next in the 2019, but subsequently later on? What should we be expecting? You know what they say in politics, eh? that um, a, a, a week is a long time in politics. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I, I never, I mean I'm politically active. I, I do want to play an active role in supporting the development of our society. But if you ask me today, you know, is there any specific role that I see myself playing? I mean, I can't say. I mean, if you asked me three years ago, you know, where do we see Akio? I might have said to you, maybe I'll be moving from Stambik in Nigeria to Standard Bank in South Africa. Um, Interesting. And here, and here I am working for the Lagos State Employment Trust. So, I mean, I think that what I'll say is that, you know, you know God willing, good health permitting, um, I'd like to still play an active role in in supporting economic development. Will you be um, going for elected position at some point? Will you be running? And it's, it's something that I will, I will consider if, you know, I, I don't want to give you a political answer and say when I, when I, when I, uh, I'll consult have to go and consult with my stakeholders. But look, I mean, it's something that I find very intriguing and very interesting. Um, and it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm firmly, I will consider at the appropriate time. I don't think now is the time. I think now I have a job that, is, that takes 100% of my attention. Um, I'm trying to do this to the best of my ability um, and also to show that we can do this thing the right way. Um, and then after that, you know, I mean, I always say I have a fixed term. So this role is a five-year term if I do it well, you know. Otherwise, I'll get, I'll get kicked out. So I have a five-year term. Um, and after that, we'll see what comes next. But, you know, what I definitely want to be is to continue to keep my voice in this political space and to hopefully sort of like, you know, um, inspire a generation of younger people to try their hands at it. I was inspired by, by people like Dr. Faemi, I always say. You know, I'll never stop saying that in terms of sort of my political awakening. Mm. You know, uh, Kyle Faemi remains my political leader. 
Um, Akin Umeambode remains my political leader. Um, mm. He's giving me my first job in public service. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's something that I say to myself, you know, this man gave me a great opportunity to, to put some of the things I've personally wanted to do, you know, mm. into action. And it's something that I'm always grateful for. So I also think that it's important that some of us aspire to higher office so that we can create opportunities like have been created for me, you know, for other people. So it's definitely something that I'm, I'm very, it's clear in my mind I'm considering. Um, when and where, I do not know. Um, but what I like is that, you know, the, the process of seeking the support of your people and delivering on the promises that you've made to those people is something that excites me greatly. Yeah. So at the right time, definitely, I mean, I'll be switching from, from uh, being behind my desk to mounting the soapbox. That's good. That's good. I'm going to end this conversation with some fire round question that I ask all my guests. And it's just one statement question and I just need your uh, quick answer on that. Okay. Are you ready for it? Yeah, sure. Sure. Cool. What is your biggest business pain point? I know you're, you're, well, you're a public servant, but you treat like a business. What is your biggest business pain point at the moment? Biggest pain point at the moment is, and don't laugh, please. It's funding. Interesting. Well, you're a fund. Yeah. The funding that we have is insufficient for the size of the problem we're dealing with. Interesting. Interesting. What is your number one growth metric? What do you measure on a maybe weekly or monthly basis to indicate that your organization is growing? Um, hmm. So for us, that's a very interesting point. I guess for us, our number one growth metric as an institution will be number of jobs created. Um, yeah, so that for us is the primary thing. You know, that's the bane of our existence. And that's what you measure uh, through the... F- so you look at every activity and every money that you write, every chapter you write, you want to evaluate it based on how many jobs will this create. Correct. Okay, which, which book are you reading at the moment? Ah, now that's, a, that's an interesting question because I never read one book at a time. Yeah, I know. Same here too. But which one is holding your attention the most out of all the books that you're reading now? So, um, right now, I'm reading two books. Um, I'm reading Americana, uh, and that's Srinivasan. Great book. I really really like it a lot. Uh, And I'm also reading Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. Um, Big fan of Bourdain, big fan of Parts Unknown. I always said, you know, if if I want to, if I grew up, if I grow up at 60, I want to be like Anthony Bourdain. Cool. Yeah, it's a shame what man. happens. That people, yes, yeah, such a yeah. man to look up to and just, just like yeah. that. So I figured, you know, I might as well go back to Real Kitchen Confidential. So I picked it up at the airport a few weeks ago and I'm moving that as well. Interesting. Which business, and I know this might be a bit tricky for you, but I will still yeah. need to mention it. Which business is getting you excited at the moment? Business, I company. Yeah, yeah, I company. Oh. It could be startup, it could be, yeah, any business that is getting you excited at the moment. Ah, what business is getting me excited at the moment? Um, must it be one name? It could be two, actually. Um, two businesses, actually. Minds.io. Interesting. Um, because I like, I like what they're doing on the, in the micro-lending space, and I, I'd like to see a lot more technology um, used in determining credit worthiness. Um, so I like, I like what they're doing and I like the team. I think the team has tested, trusted people who can execute, who have earned their stripes. I always like to see people who have spent a lot of time building you know, their capabilities, many times in paid employment, then taking all what they've learned to go and you know, run a business. Agreed. That's, that's what I, yeah, so I like that a lot. Um, I also like Paystack very much. Um, Interesting. And I think the work that Paystack and Flutterwave are doing in enabling payments for early stage entrepreneurs, you know, we are going to look back and thank them immensely for it. And on this point, I, I want to add something, you know, that when I worked in banking, right, mm-hmm. we, we used to charge 120000 naira to get people a payment gateway. Mm-hmm. And I, I tore my hair out fighting internally, saying to the guys, but this makes no sense. How can you charge people 120000 for a payment gateway, blah, blah, blah. 
and they will say, oh, Inter switch this, this one, that one. Now, you charge these guys 120K, it will take maybe two weeks to integrate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the, thing, the payments, it will fail, you know? So the people, the people never even recouped the 120,000 that they put in the stuff. Unless you know? people even use the online payment gateway that time as well. All right. Now, if you think about it, that was not very long ago, right? Mm. That was just a few years ago. Today, you know, you don't need any IT manager. You can do the stuff yourself. You can send a link to somebody on WhatsApp and the person can click on that link and pay you for your service or your goods. I mean, they've democratized the payment system in a way that we didn't think could happen a few years ago. And I think that the thousands of SMEs in Nigeria you know, it will help the people who are, you know, normally not even in the finance, who are not considered financially included. I think it will help increase the adoption of, of financial services and technology. Correct. So, so those businesses get me super excited right now. That's good. And a lot of people say that as well uh, on this show uh, about them, uh, what they've done. I think it's one of those infrastructural layer company that are necessary before we start building some interesting things. And, and they've, they've been doing that in a good way. And I also think what you're doing is great as well, especially government intervening and helping and working in the place that they're supposed to be in. I like what I heard about the fact that you guys are not trying to be players in the, in the system, but you just want to facilitate the right uh, place to play you want to be the you want to create the the, the infrastructure for or investors um startup uh, founders um and all the all the other people that are in the ecosystem to play well so it's been great having a chat with you i really enjoyed it uh and i think a lot of people have been listening to this also enjoy it we enjoyed it as well learning your story your point of view and and what you're doing at lsctf so akin thank you very much for coming to the show Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Building the Future Podcast Season 3 is brought to you in partnership with Flutterwave. Flutterwave's business is about connecting global businesses to Africa and building new businesses out of Africa through payment and technology. All opinions expressed by me and the podcast guests are solely ours and does not reflect the opinion of Flutterwave. To get started, go to flutterwave.com. You've been listening to Building the Future podcast by Dalton. These are the interviews with entrepreneurs that are playing a key part in shaping the African future. And you'll be able to hear all their stories. For more, sign up for the weekly newsletter at thestarter.com. Our revolution will be televised. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed the show. Before you go, I have a favor to ask you, and it will take 30 seconds of your time or less. It will mean a lot to me. If you like this podcast, you can easily let me know by going into iTunes, Teacher, SoundCloud, or wherever you download podcasts and subscribe. You can also go to our website, thestarter.com. That is T-H-E. S-T-A-R-T-A dot com and sign up for our newsletter. It will be a huge favor to me and it's really simple and easy. If you subscribe now, it will help us a lot. Thanks.